Hi, the sound quality of this podcast episode is not up to our usual standard, through no fault of our guest, Michael Jones. We just had a very bad Wi-Fi connection. So we've done our best with it, because we thought listeners would like to hear what Michael had to say about the Black Prince. Welcome to today's episode of A Slice of Medieval. Dermot and I decided that we'd like to have a look at the Black Prince. And I thought, who better to talk to about the Black Prince than the guy who wrote his most recent biography, a chap who I always love talking to. He nearly persuaded me on Henry V and managed to totally persuade me on Edward of Norwich, the Duke of York, as being a great guy and probably the bloke who should be credited with the victory at Agincourt rather than Henry V, and who I once made to sit down because he's so much taller than me when we were having a photo taken. So today I'd like to give a really warm, a slice of medieval welcome to Michael Jones, biographer of the Black Prince, expert on Richard III, Henry V, and a whole load of other historical characters. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. Can you give us a brief overview of who the Black Prince was? Yeah, so he was the oldest son of Edward III, his wife, Philippa of Hainaut, and he was born in 1330, and he came of age during the Hundred Years' War, and it's the Hundred Years' War that really defines him. He was blooded literally at the Battle of Cressy in 1346, that stupendous English victory, where he was given the honor position of commanding the vanguard and fought with incredible distinction and won his spurs. So he catapulted to international fame as a result of that. He was a founder member of the Order of the Garter with his father a couple of years later. And in 1356, he won a great victory against the French at Poitiers in his own right. He captured the French king. He won another victory uh, in Spain at Mojera in 1367. So he's a great warrior. He died just shy of his 46th birthday, and he predeceased his father, the king. He was renowned as a great warrior, but also as an exemplar of chivalry mm-hmm. by his contemporaries. Fascinating character, obviously, and we'll, we'll get into the nuances of that. Obvious question, though, why was he called the Black Prince? Obvious question, and it's not easy to answer it. So the first <laughs> thing to say is that he was never called the Black Prince during his lifetime. It had been quite bewildered and perhaps offended by <laughs> that. He was known as Edward of Woodstock, the Royal Palace of Woodstock was where he was born. 
the first reference is in the 16th century by the antiquarian John Leyland when he was visiting the Black Prince's magnificent tomb at Canterbury Cathedral referred to him as the Black Prince. The tomb is the most wonderful thing, by the way. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. The first time it appeared in print was the Chronicle of Richard Grafton in 1570. But the big, the big deal, the game changer, was that Shakespeare referred to him as the Black Prince. So in, <laughs> in Shakespeare's play, Henry V, don't we love it? The French king, Charles VI, referred to the terrible predecessors of Henry V, including the Prince of Wales, that black prince who laid waste. Now, once Shakespeare has given you a name check, you're enshrined in our national consciousness forever. <laughs> so it's really Shakespeare picking up on, I suspect, Richard Grafton's chronicle, one of the sources he used, that's the reason... He's called the Black Prince. Theorists, we have a whole variety of theorists. It's like pick and mix. You know, he was wearing black armor. I'm, I'm not a particular fan of that. Black deeds against the French. Well, we'll get on to that. I think that would be a kind of 19th century <laughs> creation by French historians. I think the most likely explanation, if we track it back to its source, which is John Leyland's an antiquarian. He's, He's visiting Canterbury Cathedral on the pilgrimage route. The tomb of the Black Prince was very close to the shrine of Thomas Becket. I think this was a pilgrim's nickname because when you look at the tomb, the badges of peace with the ostrich feather very strikingly are on a black backdrop. So I think my own view for what it's worth it was that it was a Pilgrim's nickname designated this magnificent memorial that Leyland picked up. Makes sense. And very few of the other suggestions really do. So I haven't thought of that one before. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, before we get on to his martial history, Edward married Joan of Kent, who had herself a rather colourful marital history in that she was married to... Montague, the Earl of Salisbury, but apparently had previously married Holland, who had then gone off on crusade and come back and said, Oi, that's my wife. And she was divorced from Salisbury and went back to Holland, but then Holland dies and she marries the Black Prince. Was it a true love story, her and the Black Prince? I appreciate the fact that you put love before. Martial endeavor, Sharon. Absolutely right. Let's get our priorities right here. <laughs> if we ask the Black Prince this question, uh, I'd say he was absolutely in love with Joan of Kent. Joan's husband, Thomas Holland, died in December 1360, and the Black Prince moved in fast and married her the following year. I don't think he was hanging around. <laughs> The couple were very loving together. I mean, Jean Frosson, not always a reliable source, but he was with them just after their marriage and said that they were very loving together. But my favorite reference is from the Chandos Herald. Now, the Chandos Herald did a, a life, a biographical life of the Black Prince, and he, he was a witness to this event in 1367, you know, this 
tough, tired army that's fought and won a, a battle in Spain has crossed back over the Pyrenees, is approaching Bordeaux. And as they're approaching the city, Joan is standing outside the gate with the oldest of the two sons, so Edward Rondulam, who sadly died in 1370, she was holding his hand. So as, as the army was approaching, so everyone's thinking, oh, this is very nice. What, what do we do? So this whole um, cavalcade of horsemen slows down, and then the, the Black Prince get, dismounts. So everyone stops. You can imagine the scene, and, and he walks towards his wife. It's been a very dangerous campaign. The Chandra's Herald also tells us she was very worried for its safety because it was high risk. They'd crossed the Pyrenees in winter. They'd fought a very dangerous battle. The, the prince was hanging out with some very unsavory characters, Pedro the Cruel and Charles the Bad, and they both, in my opinion, deserved their nicknames. The couple then embrace, and it's quite a long embrace, in front of the entire army. And then after this, they're, they're both holding the hand of their young son, and they walk into the city. So everyone thinks, okay, the whole army dismounts and processes after them. That's an eyewitness account, and that has to be uh, a wonderful, loving moment. But I have to pour a little cold water on things from Joan of Kent's point of view. Sharon has alluded to her colourful history. She was apparently married to two people at the same time, Holland and the Earl of Salisbury. But in my view, she absolutely loved Thomas Holland. And an indicator of that is in her own will. She lived to 1385, so nine years after the Black Prince. Mm. In her will, she asked to be buried next to Thomas Holland, not, not the Black Prince in Canterbury Cathedral. And it's, so I, I, I think the Black Prince was very much in love. I, I think Joan was loving, but I think her great love was Thomas Holland. I think I'd probably agree with you there. I think the thing is, you can love two people in a lifetime. But your first love, there's a difference between, like you say, your great love and the love that comes after that. So just because she loved Edward the Black Prince, it doesn't mean she forgot about Holland and that he wasn't her great love. I mean, they went through a lot to be together, didn't they, Joan and Holland? A guy who on the Cressy campaign rode in with a couple of companions to the city of Rouen, galloped up to the bridge waved the banner of St. George and berated the astonished French and then rode out again. I mean, how can you resist the charms of such a man? <laughs> so how about uh, his relationships with his his parents, Edward III and Philippa of Hainu? How, how did he get on with them? We're very 21st century, aren't we? What was the relationship to your parents like? For me, I think he had a, a loving, close relationship to his mother, Philippa Reina. Uh The tragedy, I mean, something I was very struck by in my book is that the Black Prince is the, the son that Edward III always wanted. But he's both immensely proud, but also rather jealous. Because Edward III, he has a very troubled relationship with his own father, of course. And he he's, a, he's always pragmatic with a great love of chivalry. And he has this great ideal that his older son would be a kind of paragon of chivalry. And when the paragon of chivalry surpasses his own achievements by 
winning the victory that allows the English to conduct a very favourable peace treaty. So Poitiers sets up the Treaty of Bretigny, where for the first time England holds an enlarged Gascony, Aquitaine, as a principality, this is the whole of southwest France, in sovereignty, so that they don't have to pay homage for it. So this is totally new. And movingly, the king grants Aquitaine to his son, mm -hmm. but then can't quite let go. And this causes a lot of trouble because he insists on hearing appeals by Gascon noblemen, some of whom are looking to stir up trouble at the English court at Westminster. And Charles V, who is emerging as a very smart and competent adversary to the prince, Charles is no warrior, but he is extremely able, redoubtable opponent. As she advises some of the Gascons, appeal to Edward III's court, because he recognises that father and son are starting to fall out. I, I think the tragedy was that father and son were falling out, and it culminated in the most remarkable moment in the 1370s. The prince is now ill, and he will shortly return to England, and Edward III had brokered a treaty with the wonderfully named um, Charles the Bad. The Black Prince needed to be a signatory because lands held some lands held by the Black Prince needed to be passed over to Charles. And the Black Prince refused. Uh, and his refusal, there was also a very hurt letter to his father, which is very, very moving. But he then refused to do this. He said, I am no longer going to take any action contrary to my honour and conscience. So it, it's a very sad story. And on his deathbed, the Black Prince, the King requests the Prince's move from his palace at Kennington in London to the Palace of Westminster, where the King wants to be in attendance on his son personally. And I think there's a very deep reconciliation there. Better late than never, you might say. But it's very moving, but very sad. I mean, in his final years, Edward III is a, a, a kind of sad husk of his former self, kind of running rather desperately after Alice Perez. <laughs> At his heyday, he was a really great king. What was Edward's relationship with his younger brothers? Because there were about, were there five of them? I'm trying to remember all of them. <laughs> Altogether, there were five. Mm. So Edward was the oldest, then we have Lionel, and then we have John Edmund uh, Langley, and finally Thomas of Woodstock. So we have five in that bevy of brothers. John of Grant is a huge character in his own right. He's a remarkable character, very different from the Black Prince. He claims the crown of Castile. The Black Prince supported him in this, I think it was in 1372. So he kind of gets out of his yeah. sick bed and, and supports his brother. He backs his brother. And this is relevant, not just in terms of John of Gaunt claiming Castile. For the Black Prince, military, martial, loyalty, the ties forged in war were of the utmost importance. And he was enormously grateful to John of Gaunt for the part he played in the La Fiera campaign. 1366 to 67, where John of Gaunt was a rock supporting um, the Black Prince. Uh, he held the honor position of commanding the vanguard. 
I, I have to say with some sadness that the, the campaign, the battle itself, absolute pulverizing triumph, although it doesn't lead to anything but failure. I think the Black Prince was always tremendously grateful to his younger brother for absolutely getting stuck in there. And um, one of the controversial moments of the Black Prince's career is at Limoges in September 1370, a town that uh, had gone over to the French, it changed its allegiance. And the actual commander of the army, because the Black Prince was sick and on a litter, was actually John of Gaunt. On the wishes of the Black Prince, and I argue very strongly that this huge massacre was invented by Fossar, and the only people who were being killed were people who were trying to get the English in. I want to stress that I think this is a, a military, a martial loyalty between these two brothers that transcends anything else. Obviously, the large number of children of or sons of Edward III is a is a rather thorny problem for for English history. <laughs> yeah, well, well, thorny problem. But us lovers of the Wars of the Roses, where would we be without them? <laughs> it would all be neat and tidy. Well, exactly, exactly. We'd have nothing to talk about, would we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The difference is, Henry II had the same issue with too many sons and them all fighting each other. But at the end of the day, only one, John, had any descendants. Whereas with Edward III, he had the same too many sons, but they all had descendants. And of course, we need to remember that through Lionel, we have the rival claim to the female line in Mortimer line that... that but the House of York yeah. is very striking, isn't it? That in 1415, York and Lancaster are side by side on, on the battlefield, yeah. winning our great victory. So you, you've told us a fair bit already about the, the Black Prince, the man. A hypothetical question, of course, that, that everybody, I suppose, does want to ask is, if he'd survived, what sort of a king would, would the Black Prince have been, do you think? Because he didn't become king, there's this incredible potency to his legend. And when we look at the tomb, unlike the tomb of Edward III at Westminster Abbey, which I, I think is from a death mask, the likeness is from the Black Prince in the early 1360s in his pomp. And there's so much hope here, and Thomas Walsingham's obituary really catches the same thing, and Walsingham knew the prince well. So there's a terrific sense of hope around him. The prince would have been a completely different ruler to his son Richard, because where the black prince was very strong is that he had he had an instinctive rapport with the nobility. Richard's use of ritual and courtly etiquette is very much modelled on his father's court in Aquitaine, but he has no instinctive rapport with the aristocracy. And I, I think that's where the Black Prince is very, very strong. He absolutely understood what made an aristocrat tick. When the Black Prince is facing trouble, he's judging that he can win these people over, and he does. And where, whereas the, the contrast is the funeral of Richard's queen, Anne of Bohemia, and when the Earl of Oxford arrives late, Richard strikes him in the face in front of everybody. And that's... That's about as different as you could get. That that's someone who's petulant rather than angry, and that moment would have been remembered by the entire English aristocracy. And 
some respects, it's these moments that define reign. The thing that the Black Prince would have had to have sorted out to be a great ruler, because I argue in my book that there's much more to his governance of Aquitaine, just feasting and partying, that he has a real agenda in terms of bringing good justice back to the region, and that needs to be taken very seriously if they've had more time. But the the main weakness he needed to get his spending under control. <laughs> you see, if you're a prince, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, his dad was sort of bailing him out when he he draws up his will. Um, he's kind of saying, you know, to his father, well, if you could hold my lands for another year, several years, so that all the debts can be paid off. Mm. And in fact, on his deathbed, in this moment of reconciliation, he's mm. sorting out all this stuff. Not for the first time, I imagine. Yeah. As a prince, as a as a paragon of chivalry, you can do this to some extent because, of course, the prince's great hero, Jean Count of Luxembourg, the blind king of Bohemia, who dies uh, very valiantly at Crespi. Famously, if he had any change in his pocket, he'd share <laughs> it with, with his retainers. This is largesse, uh, which is in our modern, very kind of analytical approaches to history. We um, don't like this. We like, we like a clean balance sheet. But the medieval mind, they love that sharing because what you're really saying is, um, I'm asking you to fight by my side and possibly die by my side. So what I have is also what you have. So it's very powerful. But if you're a king and you're running a kingdom, you have to combine that with some measure of financial prudence. So, so that would be the area that the prince would have to change. But he surrounds himself by very good advisors. So I think that was entirely possible. Mm. As with all generals, there is some controversy over some of Edward's actions in war. Um, we've already mentioned Limoges, and you do cover that quite thoroughly in the book, The Black Prince. Um, but he also used the chevauchet, didn't he, when travelling through France, which is basically wasting the land as you go through it. Was he more vicious than his contemporaries, or just more effective? The chevauchet means a ride. Everyone's mounted and riding through territory, laying waste to it. Edward III does this against the Scots, so I have to say that we were on the receiving end as well. One of the worst campaigns young Edward III was involved in was when the Scots were raiding us, doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is that from a modern perspective, it just looks awful, mm. targeting civilians. And you're doing several things. And you're targeting. So the whole pyramid of authority hadn't got the guts or the resources to defend his own people. That's the first thing. They're, they're targeting the agrarian means of production that through taxation will fund the war. So the big chevauchet that I think you're thinking about in 1355, where the prince basically marches from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. He, they, they start in Bordeaux, and they, they march all across the south of France. You know, they finish in Melbourne and then come back again. But the whole thing about that, firstly, Gascons were very demoralized because the French king's lieutenant in the region, Jean Count of Almanac, 
had been attacking Gascony ceaselessly. And, and the Black Prince basically said, I, I have a lot of sympathy for you. You know, Armanac is a bully and he's going to get a taste of his own medicine. Gascons love that. So the first thing they do is that they ravage Armanac's land. And Armanac hides. Mm. He doesn't dare to face the army. So he gets a taste of his own medicine and he loses face. And then the prince carries on. You know, at Carcassonne, he burns a lot of the city down, which again seems grotesque to us. But it's making a bigger statement. They were, they were offered a lot of money not to burn it down. But here, the prince is saying, this French king is so weak that he can't defend one of the principal cities of his realm. So this is the mindset. Mm. In the 19th century, a lot of French historians complained about this to the extent that recently some French historians have even complained about the 19th century French historians, but no one at the time did. Actually, can I just say, that's quite interesting, because I complain about the Victorian historians, who were also 19th century historians, so I didn't realise that the French 19th century historians were just as bad as the English 19th century historians in putting their own take on things. <laughs> A recent um, very good article showed that so-called devastation done in Narbonne by the Black Prince was actually a town renovation done by Louis XIV. I mean, you know, every, everything was bl being blamed on the Black Prince. I mean, it would kind of be World War II bombing decks that would have... <laughs> There's a very interesting document I used in my book, which was a commission of inquiry was sent out to ascertain why the uh, Anglo-Gascon army, as we say English army, but it's, you know, this army is part English, part Gascon, and the Gascons on these campaigns are a really important part. The French set out a commission to sort of, what went wrong? Why was our defence so feeble? And the commission is thorough, and it, it says men did not do their duty. They did not fortify as, as they were instructed to do. There's no criticism of the Black Prince. The criticism is levered against the French king's subjects who failed in their duty to protect their tenants. French contemporary sources, 14th century sources, like the English sources, note that this was a terror reign, but don't vilify the Black Prince. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the campaign in 1356, I guess uh, he's goading the French king into into action isn't he really so i guess there's a there's a there's a point to it in a sense well 1356 is very different uh 1355 absolutely 1356 edward iii's plan is to destroy the, the french king's army and hopefully capture the king with a three-pronged attack from Brittany. Uh, Edward III is going to land at Calais and the Black Prince with an army is going to come up from Gascony. Well, the, the Black Prince gets to the Loire and finds that his dad actually isn't coming over after all. And the, there have been terrible rains that summer. I can't get over the Loire. And then the French wake up. This is Jean II. There hasn't been very much enthusiasm because he's been 
fighting in Normandy against rebel French aristocrats in Normandy. And, and there's quite a lot of sympathy for this rebellion. But suddenly the idea of destroying the Black Prince, rather like the idea of destroying Henry V's army in 1415, heals all the divisions. Because it's the, there's one thing that can unify, indeed, either the French or the English from civil war and dissension is the prospect of annihilating the enemy. <laughs> So what happens is that when the French realize that the Black Prince is marooned, they, they recruit a huge new army on a one-month indenture system, basically to wipe out the Black Prince, this arrogant upstart who ravaged the south of France. So the Black Prince is retreating, but he is cut off and fighting for his life at Poitiers. And so the retrieve of the Anglo-Gascon army of Poitiers was truly seen as miraculous. Obviously, you're going to ask me about his best achievement, but it was an astonishing turnaround. Well, let, let's ask you that that question then about his greatest achievement and 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 what it was. Was it Poitiers or? or... Yeah, I, I've queued you up for that, haven't I? You have, yeah. So, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Poitiers defines the Black Prince. So in a way, his two memorial and the, the armorial achievements in the funeral oration of Thomas Brinkton, Bishop of Rochester, which is clearly from conversations with the Prince, special tribute is made to the battle. And how even in the closing stages, the French outnumbered the English 10 to 1, so this is divine strength, Samson subduing the lion. The Black Prince is graced with divine strength in his army at Poitiers. So it's political as well as military effect is stupendous because the French King John II is captured and will be eventually ransomed, but it leads to the Treaty of Bretigny and a chance to go for broke and to get the throne. That doesn't work, but Bretigny is the high watermark of the English war effort in the 14th century. And it has a very powerful psychological effect on Prince because it is like Agincourt, a battle won against the odds. This is defining moment. The English always in Hundred Years' War dismounted. After Cressy, the French have wised up to this so that at Poitiers, the French use cavalry on the wings and missile-bearing troops, but their main attack will also be dismounted. When John II's main force comes, the English are absolutely exhausted, and the Gascons too, and people are saying, my God, I just can't take any more of this. And they do this extraordinary thing. They give the order to mount up, and a flanking force is sent behind, and then they charge straight at the French king with such force that they knock the French king's bodyguard and, and the men around him out of the battle line. So the, uh, John II and his followers are in a meadow with the main French division somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> and it's totally counterintuitive. It's quite uh, an amazing ending to the battle. The Black Prince has a, a remarkable achievement in the in a battle where many Frenchmen are captured, the Black Prince manages, it's an astonishing achievement, to be out of pocket. <laughs> Someone said, could, could Richard III have been influenced by that, deciding on an all or nothing show as it was worth? And I said, quite possibly, because he'd have certainly known about it. And came close to success as well. Close as possible. 
seconds away from winning the battle. Yeah. William Brandon. Yeah. Just a few feet away from Henry Tudor. Yeah. And when Brandon is killed, there's a recognition here that Brandon fought long enough to save Henry Tudor's life because Brandon had a baby child, Charles. Henry Tudor, another man renowned for sentimentality when he became king, brought Charles out in his royal household as if he was one of his own offspring, which is why Charles Brandon and Henry VIII are so close. Mm. So this is what an act of valour on the battlefield can do. Yes, definitely. So what is your final judgment of Edward the Black Prince? Was he an admirable knight or a villain? He was an admirable knight. And let's remember, because when he dies, there are very moving tributes from the English, and they are very, very striking. But the key thing is how the French respond. Mm. So this is a man, as you rightly said, mm. who's raided, terrorized the south of France, captured the French king, and then, you know, beaten French forces. Charles V orders a solemn day of mourning and holds a, a requiem mass him. There's no other example of him doing that during the Hundred Years' War. And that chronicle of the House of Valois says people may find this really strange, but someone who is our mortal enemy, uh, we are observing uh, requiem mass. But the truth was that above this, he was a model of all chivalry, and that's why we are mourning him hmm. so much. Well, you couldn't ask for a, a more powerful or moving tribute than that. And a, a big part of my book yeah. was around getting back to that reality that the man who moved people so much that even his enemies would do that had been lost. Yeah. So we either had two-dimensional hero worship or a total deconstruction where the French wouldn't have reacted at all, apart from joy. So I felt that the man who's so fascinated and who had such a strong impact on contemporaries had been lost. Mm. And that was the reason I wrote the book, to kind of bring him back to life again, to make him a figure with his faults, who had such powerful qualities that friend and foe admired him. We were talking earlier about his brothers and and when Richard II became king. But if you think about it, one supposes that if, if Edward had become king, those brothers who presented so many problems for the successors of Edward III would actually have been an enormous strength for the new king Edward, as it were. Absolutely. They would have been the, the right-hand man. Mm, yeah. I think these very powerful brothers, as we know from Edward IV's reign, can either be a force for the good or a, a cause of extraordinary disruption. <laughs> and uh, this is the power of that instinctive quality that the Black Prince had. I am confident that if the Prince had become king, those brothers would be working as an uh, incredible support team. Yeah. I mean, we haven't we haven't asked you about his death, but I think from from what I've read, there is an, an element of controversy about what he actually died of. It used to be thought dysentery, but now that I read something recently, and I can't remember where now, that it might not have been that. The army that he took to Spain suffers from dysentery, amoebic dysentery, and 
summer of 1367, and quite a lot of people die. Let's make a comparison with Henry V, who picks up a new big dysentery at the, uh, one of the big sieges that he's conducting, and it kills him in two months from mm. Vietnam. And the Black Prince's disease, it, it begins in 1368, and he dies in 1376. So it's certainly not a near-dictum dysentery. And the other thing is that people in the army suffered from it, that the prince mm. is fit and well in the first part of 1368. The first reference to him being ill enough to needing a physician is in October and November of 1368. My own opinion is that it was wrecked with cancer, and I say that because the surgeon who wrote a treatise on this brought it out in the year of the Black Prince's death mm. and treated Black Prince's soldiers, and, and that would accord better with the symptoms. But the truth is, it's very difficult to medically diagnosed. We try it with all sorts of people, Henry the Sixth, and what causes breakdowns, and there's a limit to what we can do. Yeah, there's never going to be any certainty about these things, is there? It's very sad. He joins the lay confraternity at St. Albans and clearly immobilised much of the time in a lot of pain. And I must have reflected that, that this was judgment of God and failures in the English war effort. Mm. He was a deeply pious man, his father was, but the prince had a particularly deep piety, and uh, he must have been very, very hard physically, emotionally, but also spiritually. Mm. Well, thank you, Mike. You've given us a lot to think about, about the Black Prince. That was absolutely fascinating. I'm going to go back and read the book again now, I think. <laughs> If anyone wants to know any more, I can highly recommend Michael Jones's The Black Prince. It's an absolutely fabulous biography. There is a review of it on my website on historyoftheinterestingbits.com. I'll just get a little plug in there. <laughs> and it is a fascinating read, which is why Mike was the first person I thought of when we said Black Prince. So thank you very much for joining us, Mike. Absolutely lovely talking to you. It's been a pleasure, both of you. Oh, what we haven't asked, and um, we are, we usually ask, is what are you doing at the moment? At the moment, I'm writing a book on the beginning of World War Two. My next book will be on the end of the Hundred Years' War. Two very different projects. That must be quite refreshing, actually. Well, good luck with both those projects. My son will enjoy reading the one about World War Two, and I'll enjoy reading the one about the end of the Hundred Years' War. Thanks very much, Mike. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Yes, thanks, Mike. Thank you very much, Derek and Sharon. So thank you very much to Mike Jones. Do join us next time when we have Matthew Lewis joining us to talk about, not Richard III, but Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. I'm really looking forward to that because we haven't done much on Henry and Eleanor, so it'd be interesting to hear Matthew's take. Thank you for joining us today. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks, and we look forward to the next time.